Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now I hope everybody is hanging in there through these dog days of August in which we're having an awful lot of what might just be called weather. And on that subject, writ large, the latest report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which was published on Monday, is nothing less than, I would suggest, a call to arms. The planet, as we know it, is warming up to a point where large tracts will be uninhabitable, possibly within decades. And beyond that, the fallout will be literally catastrophic for life as we, or probably more to the point, our children have come to know it. There is this group of 230 leading scientists who compiled the report to state it, a window still. We can secure a future if all of us are willing to do what is required. But what exactly is that? And what difference can we in this small island in the North Atlantic make? Joining me to discuss this and other aspects to this growing issue is Dr. Cara Augustenberg, who will be known to some of you. And for those who don't know her, Cara is an environmental scientist, climate change lecturer and writer, as well as being a member of the President's Council of State. Cara, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mick. Cara, there's been a lot of analysis and reporting since the publication of the IPCC report, but I'd just like to break it down to a few brass tacks, if I could, in terms of the responsibilities of citizens in the first instance, those who govern the country, and finally, the global picture. But before that, a question that I've heard from some people, particularly in recent days, but really gone back quite a while, is... Are we being asked to engage in transformative change on this little island and what difference will that make? I mean, if we undergo this change, and it will be huge, it will in real terms do next to nothing to alleviate climate change. That, to a large extent, is down to the major economies and corporations. What do you say to that argument? Uh, sure. I mean, it's that's a, a comment that gets brought up a lot in the media. And look, if we if we could all say that as individuals, one individual is not going to fix the climate problem. You know, five million, seven million individuals are not going to fix the climate problem. Um, so it's a very easy way to kind of pass the buck and say it's someone else's responsibility. But if we don't all chip in and change our lives, uh, the problem won't get fixed. So it's the famous prisoner's dilemma. If you if you follow economic game theory at all, you know, we we all have to assume that all 200 countries that have signed on to the Paris Agreement are all doing what they said they would do to try and get off fossil fuels. And that includes Ireland. Uh, and if we don't all do it and we don't all change the way we live and transform, then the problem won't go away. And, and Irish people in particular and Americans have uh, have had very high carbon lifestyles as individuals. I mean, here in Ireland, we we fly more than than most 
uh, people around the world. We have very energy inefficient, leaky homes that are heavily dependent on fossil fuels. We drive more than most people in the world, further than most people in the world uh, on our daily commutes. So, so we have a disproportionately high carbon lifestyle. You know, and we're still asking uh, countries like India, where where they haven't had a chance to develop develop using fossil fuels. We're asking them to change too. We're not giving them the chance to develop their economies using fossil fuels. We're telling them they have to find a, another way now and and we have to find another way too. So, I mean, would it be fair to say that in that context, what we're talking about in respect of, despite being a small island, what we're talking about is the moral argument rather than uh, necessarily a scientific one as far as the big picture is concerned. Well, it's the moral argument, but it's also that that every every individual has to change. So you can't say just because we happen to come from a country with a small population that somehow uh, gets us off the hook. Now, you know, some of that is a fault of, of the accounting practices. The way we account for carbon is on a countrywide basis. But if we counted it on a per capita basis or on an individual basis, you know, Irish people would be some of the biggest culprits of climate change in the world because we consume so much more, you know. Um, China always gets labeled as being a big emitter of emissions, but the reality is Chinese people have relatively low carbon lifestyles. The reason China has high emissions is because countries like ours insist on buying brand new phones every couple of years and insist on buying lots of stuff from China, and that's what's driving their emissions up. So if we even counted carbon on a consumption basis rather than where the item is produced, uh, that would change the picture considerably and, and make the burden of responsibility on countries like Ireland even higher. I've seen one uh, statistic, Cara, that suggests the wealthiest 10% of countries are responsible for 50% of emissions. Is, is that broadly correct? And are we within that 10%? I mean, the the big emitters are the obvious ones, the, the US, China, um, Australia, those are in India's is getting higher. Those are the big because their populations are bigger uh, because of their manufacturing base, uh, because of their well in America's case, because of their lifestyle, for sure. Um, Ireland becomes a fraction of that because we are a very small country. So we don't make up, uh, you know, we, we obviously can't possibly uh, be one of the biggest emitters because of the size of our country. But on a per capita basis. Uh, sorry, I meant a per capita basis. Exactly. Yeah. On a per capita basis, um, yeah, we're one of the higher ones. Um, in, in Europe, we are we are one of the worst in Europe for sure. We're in the top three, kind of baddest in terms of emissions. So um, we definitely are our contributors if you look at it in that sense for sure. Right, Cara, and we've just seen during the pandemic, for instance, uh, at a time when the economy ground to a halt, that there was roughly, I think, a 5% reduction in carbon emissions over the course of a year. Now, putting that into context that we're looking for a 50% reduction, I think it is, by 2030, that suggests something of a transformative change, certainly in the way our economy works. Yeah, um, if that had been as a result of real transformation where we had done stuff to actually move away from fossil fuels, then absolutely that would be a, a great start. Um, unfortunately, we saw this with the last uh, economic crash too, where emissions plummeted uh, following the economic crash as a result of, of basically transport and haulers weren't moving around the country as much as so transport emissions went down. And then as soon as the economy opened back up again, we saw emissions absolutely um, you know, increase exponentially. 
um, when when the economy started to reopen. So, you know, these things, this will buy us maybe a year or two, it buys us a tiny bit of time uh, to help get our house in order. Um, but, but, you know, this kind of emissions reduction as a result of a complete lockdown of society um, is certainly not a transformation. It's not the kind of transformation that we that we want to see. Uh, and and it will we expect that emissions will start to go up as soon as things start to reopen again, because we haven't really put any permanent solutions in place to cause them to go down. Oh, I accept that. But the, like the point I'm making is, is that if we shut down the whole thing, you're only talking about a 5% reduction. So, I mean, we need effectively a reduction uh, 10 times that amount by 2030. What I'm trying to get at really is the level of transformation is huge. in our economy is absolutely, uh, and, and so it's, it's difficult to imagine it yeah. be, being possible to, to, to change it by that degree. Yeah, I mean, it, you're right. It is scary to think that if if we if we had to actually all hide away in our homes and we still only reduce emissions by five percent, uh, you know, how do we do seven percent a year uh, without without those kind of extreme measures? Um, I mean, I think it's important to bear in mind that by being locked at home, what we found is that energy usage in households went way up. You know, um, office buildings tend to be much more energy efficient. So it was actually probably more efficient from a heating point of view and an electricity point of view for us to be in offices working together versus working individually in, in houses, you know, with, with leaky heating systems. So, you know, we did see in the residential sector uh, energy emissions go up as a result of the, the pandemic. Um, and then obviously in the transport sector, they they went way down. But um, so so I don't think it's quite in indicative of, of the kind of transformations we need to make, you know, that we need to be doing large-scale energy retrofit of, of housing um, so that we aren't using fossil fuels for our emissions. Uh, you know, and I, I do think there are some things that we saw from the pandemic that, that we could lock in, the, the, the need for green spaces in every locality, the need for safe cycling and walking infrastructure, which people were, were crying out for more of during the pandemic. Um, so all of those things are, are hopeful things we could build on. Um, there is a pathway to reducing emissions by 51% by 2030. It's not impossible. Um, 7% a year on average isn't impossible. Uh, certainly if we if we afforest or if we plant a lot of trees very quickly, that would make a huge difference over the next uh, 10 years. Um, so there are things we could be doing to, to make that goal achievable. Okay, but in broad terms, in your opinion, um, the, the whole economic model that's been used in the Western world, certainly since post-war at the very least, post-Second World War, has been the, the whole idea of expansion. The economy must expand in order for people to prosper, etc. In your opinion, does that model have to change in order to meet our carbon emissions, the, the old economic model of an expanding economy? Yeah, I do think we need to we need to move away from metrics that are all about economic growth. I, I think, I mean, aside from the climate issue, um, I haven't really seen them uh, being helpful to people in general. You know, this this single-minded, it's all about GDP. Um, it doesn't seem to work for for social issues either. So I do think um, we need a different uh, a different mindset. My personally, I would like to see kind of an environmental tax reform. So rather than taxing people to work 
work um, that we that we tax on resources instead because we see that some of the wealthiest people in the world consume the most resources. They tend to have the, the biggest cars. They tend to fly the most. They have the biggest houses that use a lot of energy. Um, so so I think if we if we had a more resource-based tax model, um, it would be more equitable uh, and it would be more sustainable. Um, so where we were charged for not only the carbon we emit, but but I think we should be charged for the, the water we use and everything. Um, but instead of uh, taxing labor uh, on an individual level, um, I think I think resources would make more sense to me. But it has to be done as a system change. And I think what we've done so far is, you know, we've slapped on a carbon tax. We've tried to slap on a water charge um, on based on the current economic model, based on the current taxation model, rather than actually reforming the whole system. Absolutely. And I, I think a lot of people would agree with you. And it's um, the type of model you're talking about, people have suggested in one form or another as an alternative to what has been in place largely in the Western world for all those decades. Yet, so far, very few countries, if any, have got around to doing it. And on the basis, like you mentioned, for example, taxing resources, water, etc., and as well, the, the Citizens' Assembly found that uh, I think something around, maybe around 80% of people, representatively speaking, were willing to pay uh, taxes in order to tackle climate change. Having said that, all our experience in this country is that when it comes to taxes, and most particularly new taxes, there is huge resistance to implementing them. Yeah, absolutely, and and again, I think it's because we 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 just slap them onto existing models rather than uh, looking at looking at a completely alternative model. So it is hard for people here who who are working and maybe forty percent of their income is is being taxed, and then they're being told, and now here's another tax, um, and it suddenly gets harder and harder to work. I mean, I, I think uh, even myself when I I when I look at what I make, you know, uh, in my take home job as a lecturer at UCD. I would certainly be better off not working when you add childcare expenses to that and everything. Um, so, you know, that model, that's obviously an unsustainable model on an individual uh, level. And in the meantime, you know, there's very little incentive for us to change to low carbon activities. Um, where does the money come from to do your deep energy retrofit uh, or put solar panels on your house or change your car to a cleaner type of car or an electric car? Um, like the, that system isn't there in place. Place to make those changes obvious. Now, we do have a carbon tax, and I support the idea of a carbon tax. It has been found to work when it's priced high enough um, to discourage uh, essentially dirty behavior. And I think the fact that ours will go up by six or seven euros every year uh, to reach 100 euro a ton eventually, um, and it's now 26 euro a ton, uh, I think that should uh, be a price signal to people that actually, you know, the cost of carbon, the cost of fossil fuels is only going to go up. So when you have the opportunity to change over, uh, it would make financial sense to do so. Um, but we should be doing a lot more in that space uh, regarding lending and financing and making this the easy and cost effective solution for people to change their lifestyles. Absolutely. Uh, a couple of issues arise there, though. And for example, one is, as you mentioned, carbon taxes. Now, this week, the ESRI has come out and suggested that carbon taxes, uh, increasing carbon taxes in all likelihood will lead to fuel poverty, particularly among the poorest. 
Uh, so, you know, if I accept that if the model, if it's done properly, hopefully that could be avoided. But notwithstanding that, the main opposition party, Sinn Féin, are completely opposed to any increase in carbon taxes. So, for instance, in a scenario whereby Sinn Féin came into government in, say, for example, two or three years' time, you could have an immediate turnabout in policy in that respect. I mean, the, the, the political changes that are required, no more than anything else, appear to be daunting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's really worrying um, because all of this uh, low carbon transition and everything requires financing and it requires a big uh, capital investment. And that's why we didn't see change for a long time, because, you know, the, the major political parties would say, oh, we don't feel like investing all this money now for things that might benefit us in the long term, you know, well after we're elected or well after we're we're in, in office. So coming up with the money to make these changes is a big, big problem. And, um, you know, you can be opposed to carbon taxes or water taxes or anything, but then you need to provide an answer for where the money comes from to make these changes and how you get people to get on board with making these changes when maybe the cheaper option is the dirty diesel car, um, not the electric car. So um, I haven't seen, you know, these these political parties that that are opposed to carbon taxes or opposed to, to taxing environmental resources um, and claim that they're into sustainability have yet to put forward a, a model for where they will get that money. I mean, I know people before profit have said that they will sue corporations uh, and try and get the money from corporations, but that will take decades. Decades, and they're, they're very likely they will be unsuccessful in the courts um, in trying to do that. So that's not actually a real solution to financing uh, a low carbon transition. So I, I do think you have to make um, dirty behaviors more expensive. But I am very mindful, um, you know, that that fuel poverty is is a real issue. Um, uh, it's a, it's an issue for me right now too, and my my e-rated home that I'm trying to to retrofit that's costing me a fortune in in fossil fuel bills in heating and electricity. Um, so so it is something that we have to we have to find solutions for. And I think the current solution right now is to make sure that people who are in fuel poverty are are trying are are very quickly put at the front of the queue for for deep energy retrofits. So they are immediately pulled out of fuel poverty through household energy retrofit uh, so that their energy bills become very, very small. And and that is the the quickest solution to making sure that we don't have fuel poverty as a result of a carbon tax. I think on transport, it gets much more unclear. We don't really know who is in fuel poverty over transport, meaning who has to live outside of a city and commute long distances in a, you know, in a diesel car, for example, um, and and can afford to switch to an electric or a cleaner model or public transport. Um, and they're kind of forced into their cars and forced into driving long distances. And I think nobody quite has the information on how we ensure that those people don't end up in fuel poverty as a result of a carbon tax. And that's probably the issue we need to resolve uh, very quickly. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. Okay, now, on a personal basis, um, you know, we've all over the decades, well, most of us, I hope, and I, only in this, I'm, I'm not claiming any virtue in this respect, but we've come around in terms of behavioural changes in a small ways, realising what we need to do, most obviously in, in relation to recycling, household waste and that kind of thing. But on the basis of the urgency that is now there, 
Could you give me, for example, three behavioural changes that each of us could give serious consideration to in order to for ex- up our contribution to arresting the kind of change that's going on? Yeah, um, well, first of all, it's it's different for everybody because we all have different types of carbon footprints. So some people may fly a lot, be it for work or for, for personal reasons, um, and that's the worst thing you can possibly do for your individual carbon footprint. So, you know, if, if you're someone who flies a lot and uh, then you're, you're part of the privileged elite, I mean, a, a large portion of the world have never been on a plane. I think it's something like t- only 20% of the, of the population in the whole world have ever been on a plane. It's, it's relatively small. So, um, you know, cutting down on flying is is an, an obvious one if you're someone who flies a lot, but not everybody is. Um, and in which case, then we, where you you know where you emit the most carbon or greenhouse gas emissions uh, can be quite individual. So it could be that you have a you know a very heavy uh, animal based or meat based uh, diet, um, or it could be that you have a very energy inefficient home. It could be that you have to drive a lot. Um, so so it really depends. And so knowing your carbon footprint is really the first thing you need to do is you need to know where you're emitting uh, your carbon and then starting to chip down. You can't change everything overnight, but trying to take the biggest things and say, OK, I'm going to I'm going to try and focus on on getting this particular thing down or investing in, in this particular change in, in my house. But I would always say that all really all of these things require big system changes. Um, there are things that an individual can't solve. So that is that is why. Personally, I went from being an environmental scientist to being quite politically active because I realized that I, as an individual, no matter how much I change my lifestyle, I'm not going to solve this problem. I'm not even going to be able to get my carbon footprint down low enough to what I need to get it to without big system changes that require big government intervention. So getting politically engaged and asking all of your politicians on the doorsteps and, you know, writing to your TDs and asking them what they're doing about climate change, what's their plan, you know, um, that is, that is for me, the number one thing I think we as individuals can do to really um, change the system and, and try and reach that transformative change. Because as you said, another political party could come into government in four or five years and erase everything and say, you know, we're, we're, we're not making this a priority anymore. So it's important to put pressure on all political parties for voters to keep telling them, yes, this is important to us. Yes, we need to keep moving toward this goal. Okay, but you mentioned flying there, for instance, Karen. Now, say, for example, a family uh, have an annual holiday abroad in which obviously they would be flying towards it. Would you suggest to them that they re-examine their lifestyle in that manner? Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, um, I think uh, flying has gotten a bit overrated anyway. Now it's we're all kind of treated like cattle uh, when we get on a plane. So there's a there's a lot to be said, and there's a growing trend now in overland travel. And uh, I think kids fly free around Europe, so um, it can actually work out uh, cheaper. So I do have some friends who have really committed to this idea of going to Europe uh, overland by land and sea, and say it's great that they you know they even get their their kind of bags dropped off for them so they don't have to carry their big uh, rucksacks around or anything. So um, that can be quite an adventure, seeing the world go by uh, on a train or on a boat. So I think it's it's worth considering that or even just, look, we're, we're more and more now because of COVID, we're, we're exploring our own country, which I think is the most beautiful country in the world. Uh, so, so certainly trying to reduce, I know it's not always possible. And look, I've had to go back to America for weddings and funerals and stuff. And so it, it's hard to tell people don't fly at all. But I 
think if you can even cut back to one less flight a year um, or, you know, or start looking at your options for, for traveling by land and, and sea, um, that's, a, that's a good step forward in, in that respect. And politically, is there a case there for to make flying punitively expensive? Uh, we should have a carbon tax on aviation fuel. We don't. So, you know, it seems weird to me that that we pay a carbon tax on our on our fuel to drive our cars, but our but our fuel to, to fly is um, is actually quite heavily subsidized. And so that's one of the things that's making it um, more expensive, for example, to travel by rail than it is to travel by, by plane. And that makes no sense when you look at the difference in environmental damage between uh, rail and, and aviation. So, so I think we do need to make flying more expensive because it's not actually capturing the true damage that it's doing to the environment. And um, look, if you look at the the way the the space race 2.0 is going with the likes of Jeff Bezos and uh, Elon Musk and Richard Branson, you know, they're not being charged at all for the damage they're doing uh, flying these rockets in into space. And, and they're now saying they want space tourism to become a reality. So uh, we have to start looking at this, this damage of actually essentially injecting these chemicals directly into the atmosphere at, you know, very, very high altitudes, which is much more damaging than than emitting them here on the ground. Yeah, some people suggest that if they went into space, maybe they wouldn't come back and would, would uh, help the carbon footprint. Yeah, but, I but, <laughs> but just we see on on another level, for example, the National Development Plan 2040. Now there'd be a lot of infrastructural projects in that, including some road building in that. Mm. Would you suggest that that should be revisited? Um, I think we certainly have to continue to pay for road maintenance. We can't we can't neglect the road maintenance thing. Um, we I like the the move now is a you know a two to one investment between so we we fund twice the amount in uh, public transport and sustainable transport options than we do to roads. That's the new commitment to to government, and I think that's the right the right balance. So it's not to say no more roads ever, but it's to say we prioritize uh, public transport transport more. And I think when we are building new roads, you know, if we were doing another M50 or whatever, it would be crazy not to be looking at some sort of uh, public transport rail down the middle that they've done in lots of places uh, in America that I know of, um, you know, and, and creating more public transport options alongside uh, your your standard ring road, for example. So, so I think um, we just need to get that balance right where it makes more sense for people to use public transport than it does to drive everywhere. One other big area, of course, is agriculture. And one of the issues that has arisen there recently is the notion of whether or not the national herd should be reduced. I mean, where would you stand on that? I think it will happen naturally when we move to a more diverse agricultural system. And I, and I think more and more um, people are accepting and countries are accepting that that diversifying your food production system is a smart move when you're looking at the kind of catastrophic climate impacts that are coming our way as a result of this, you know, um, these kind of reports that the IPCC are putting out. Um, so we, we, have, uh, we have seen the UK government, for example, say that they are diversifying their agricultural system. Uh, we've seen the joint Oireachtas Committee uh, here in Ireland on climate action say that that Ireland should diversify our food production system too uh, to prepare for a changing climate. Uh, so when you do that, when you when you move to more horticulture, for example, or more diverse systems, maybe some we definitely need some bioenergy in there to address our our energy emissions. Um, 
naturally that the herd size decreases because it makes more sense for farmers to produce other types of food um, than just beef and dairy. So I think it'll happen. Um, I think it'll happen as a result of uh, various rules that are coming in around uh, fertilizer use um, for from a water quality point of view and everything. Um, once we start uh, decreasing the amount of fertilizer we use, then our, our yields decrease and, you know, then naturally um, the number of livestock start to decrease too. So um, I, I think this, this term culling the herd is quite emotive i think it's it's used in the media to kind of to kind of create this picture that we're going to you know line up a bunch of cows and shoot them and put them in a pile and that is nobody has proposed that and i don't think anyone has any intention of that but i do think we uh we need to look at just protecting ourselves making ourselves a more resilient country and more food secure i really worry where will we get our food when the rest of the world is in climate chaos and we're so heavily dependent on food imports so um you know we come from a tradition where 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 every every farm in ireland used to produce oats to feed horses uh so we are capable of producing other things than just grass um we had a we had a culture of orchards apple orchards and fruit growing uh and i think we need to bring all of that back and start really um thinking about food security Okay, and the other issue that arises constantly and correctly is this idea of a just transition. The, the the transformative change we're talking about is going to have major impact right across society. And previously, in other respects, we have often seen, for example, when there's an economic collapse or other issues, it is those at the lower ends of the socioeconomic ladder that get it worse. Mm-hmm. And for this to have any moral authority that transition will have to be just, won't it? Yeah, and, um, you know, the, the National Economic and Social Council, NESC, uh, did some good analysis of this at the, at the start when people were talking about just transition and they looked at, you know, the impact of moving to a low-carbon society on jobs in Ireland. And they also looked at the impact of moving to a digital society on jobs. And um, the thing I find interesting is that, you know, the impact on on jobs of moving low-carbon is, is relatively small when you look at um, the impact of a digital trans. Uh, transformation. So, you know, we can manage, and this is what Nesk is saying, not me, but we can manage um, that transition when it comes to low carbon jobs. You're talking about, you know, a few thousand people and we could very quickly resource and train them to move them into other types of jobs. You know, the peat workers of Ireland um, could very easily be moving into peat peat land restoration, which is what's happening now um, as one example of this. Um, So we could be retraining Training, you know, automotive repair people who are used to repairing, um, you know, petrol vehicles, we could be training them now to be more comfortable with the electric technology that's coming down the pipeline or boiler repair people should be trained now in installing heat pumps. So this is something we we can manage and we can invest in and we can make happen. Um, It's much more scary when you look at the impact of moving to a digital uh, transformation, which is happening anyway, just as the the result of of, uh, computer technology and data centers and everything and no one is talking about a just transition in that area which i find quite troubling you know that it's all all the emphasis is on being careful around the low carbon transition when in fact we should be much more worried about what the digital transformation will have on in terms of jobs in ireland i I suppose that's true in terms of jobs but in in terms of low carbon transformation it's beyond jobs really isn't it in terms of uh, retrofitting homes, in terms of transport and that sort of thing. And in those areas, it's quite possible that those who can least afford the change might be 
proportionately impact it far greater and that that would enter it as well. But I suppose, Cara, finally, just in terms of the political framework, I saw somewhere suggested yesterday and it struck me as a very sensible suggestion that what we really need in order for this to get through is some form of an equivalent plan to slaunch a care in health, something that the whole body politic will agree on and that any uh, political differences can be on the basis of how exactly that is carried out rather than the thing being reduced to squabbling and being reduced to promises that you'll do something, make it easier when you get in, etc. That type of thing. Would you have any confidence that we could have that kind of an agreed programme? Yeah, I mean, I think we have that now in the form of our climate, our new climate legislation, which passed uh, about two weeks ago now, which which commits in law, uh, commits Ireland to this 51% emission reduction by 2030 and net zero by 2050. Um, and I think now that that is the overarching view that every government must uh, adhere to. So we will argue about the how. And so part of this legislation is that the Climate Advisory Council will set forth a, an overall carbon budget every five years. And then the government of the day will argue how that carbon budget is divided, which sectors have to reduce uh, and to what extent. Um, so they will then, you know, fight over over the kind of the individual. Dual, uh, policies to make to adhere to that carbon budget. So, so that should be very, very helpful because it means that if a government decides they're they're going to ignore the climate crisis and they're not going to adhere to a budget, um, we the people have the right to sue them, and you know, and that kind of forces forces them to keep adhering to the budget because they're they're always afraid of being uh, sued by by the, the citizens. So, um, I think we're going to start to see that, and it's been a long time coming. It's been something we asked for the last time there was a climate legislation, which was passed in 2015. And unfortunately, it got so watered down in the end that it, it didn't have any kind of budget or targets um, that that were, um, you know, justiciable, as they say. Um, so so I'm hopeful now that that this will this will kind of lock in that commitment toward emissions reductions. And we will finally start to see that emissions curve uh, bend as a result of this legislation. Yeah, I, I'd have to say, I unfortunately, maybe I'm cynical, but I don't share the same confidence that successive governments won't be able to wriggle in some form or another in order to um, project themselves as offering what you might call a better deal for the citizens at large. But we'll have to, we'll have to wait and see. In five years now, you and I can sit down and see if that curve has been bent. Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, very much like that. In general terms, Cara. Within the context, within the size of what's required, do you retain hope that we can do something about it? Um, you know, over the last month now, since this climate legislation came into effect, I am far more hopeful about Ireland's contribution to climate action than I ever have been before. So uh, in that sense, I'm hopeful. Uh, reading these IPCC reports kind of fills me with terror. And, um, you know, the longer we delay action, the the less hope there is of of kind of staying below two degrees, for example, um, the fact that they're now saying that that 1.5 degree target will be exceeded in all scenarios um, is quite troubling. And and um, But uh, every little bit that we do, you know, protects us from another degree or another tenth of a degree of warming. So I think, you know, we, we should keep fighting 
no matter what, you know, even if we overshoot the 1.5, we need to try and stay below two or we need to try and stay below three. And, you know, you know, if we can protect uh, future generations from a world that's five to seven degrees warmer than today, which would be absolutely catastrophic, um, then I think we should do everything to to make that happen. So uh, I still have hope uh, for sure. Um, it, it gets it gets hard on some days when you read when you read about the impacts that are happening all around us um, and people who are already suffering from climate change. But um, I think that that's never going to be a reason to stop trying to prevent the worst impacts from happening. We're here for the long haul. Yes, for sure. Cara Gustenberg, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Mick. I'd also like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon, and thank you for listening. Get this podcast on all the usual platforms and don't forget to subscribe to The Examiner for the full range of our journalism for just €1.50 a week. You wouldn't get a cup of coffee for it. Go easy. On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. I feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are, like, interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.